All right, good morning, familia. <clears throat> For those of you visiting the church, my name is Hannibal. I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. And if you're visiting for the first time, I think I want to do a little bit of an introduction on why is it that we as a church exist. Uh, and the way we explain it here, it says, uh, we say that we exist, so we become more and more people of four loves. People that love God, love, God, love one another, love our neighbors, and love the nations. And to do that, to be able to be people of the four loves, we need to be people of two things. People of the book and people of the cross. It is impossible for anybody to grow into becoming um, people of the four loves unless we are people of the book and people of the cross. And that's precisely the reason why we have been doing this journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Because we want to be people of the book. Amen? But also, we have been spending a ton of time looking at the things that happened before the cross. And we will talk about what happened at the cross and pay attention to what will happen after the cross. And we do that because we also need to be people of the cross. Amen? People of the book and people of the cross. Can you say that with me? People of the book and people of the cross. No, that was lame. Let's do it again. People of the book and people of the cross. All right. That's all right. Today, as we continue in our, through our journey in the Gospel of Matthew... We're going to find something similar to what we saw last week in which there's a group of people at one end and it's Jesus on the other end and we, we have to make a comparison between them two. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the religious leaders, uh, specifically the high priest, and we're going to learn some lessons from him. And then we're going to compare that to Jesus and we're going to learn some lessons from him. And then at the end, we're going to learn another lesson. So these are the three points for today. I'm calling these the lessons from the courtyard. We're going to learn something from the high priest attitude. We're going to learn something from Jesus' response. And we're also going to learn something from Jesus' final declaration. The high priest attitude, Jesus' response, and Jesus' final declaration. Let's go with point number one. <clears throat> what can we learn from the high priest attitude? Right at the beginning of the text, you can see how desperate the religious leaders are. Right at the beginning, you can see how desperate these uh, Jewish religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus. So and so much, the verse 57 says that the high priest and the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled to go against Jesus. So this is the Sanhedrin. Verse, 15, uh, verse 59 said it. And, <clears throat> and this group of people will be, <clears throat> excuse me, this group of people will be something like the religious supreme court. It was about 70 of them. And the quote-unquote president of this religious supreme court, it will be the high priest. And the duty of these people is to perform um, similar things to what we would see in a regular case or in a regular uh, trial. Now, the way the narrative starts is extremely important because right from the beginning, we're going to see, and I need you to pay attention to this, that everything that happened in this quote-unquote trial is both dishonest and unlawful. Right from the beginning, everything that is happening here is both dishonest 
and I, and I love all. And I find that to be super ironic because the high priest will be kind of the most holy one out of the whole community. And the teachers of the law were the teachers of the law of God. Thank you so much. Of the teachers of the law of God. And actually, you also find the elders, which the elders were responsible <clears throat> to be examples to the rest of the religious community. And they're going to do these things that they're going to do, and they're going to say the things that they're going to say, all in the name of God. But I just told you that what you're going to see there is that everything that is happening here is both dishonest and unlawful. So he, the irony of in, in all of this is that here we have these people that are so zealous to protect God's name, protect God's law, that they're willing to compromise their character. Don't you find that ironic? By the way, this is the kind of things that non-Christians use against Christianity. These are the kind of things that non-Christians see, pay attention to, and they use that against Christianity. They use the very testimony of a lot of believers to go against Christianity. I'm going to give you an example of this. Two weeks ago, um, I mentioned that in the last 20 years, about 40 million people have walked away from the church. you remember that? Um, and that the term that is used is that these are the de church The unchurch is, is the term that is used for non-believers, that people that don't have... Uh, they're not pro-Christianity, but the deep church are the ones that once were Christians and now seem to be walking away. This is what is super interesting, though. Uh, and, and I'm going to speak to you, for those of you that are parents or grandparents or you know any kind of parent in your life. 80% of the children that walked away from the church, 80% were part of what we call today the cultural Christians. Meaning, these are people that kind of came to church every now and then and kind of did religious things every now and then, but they didn't really have a, a personal relationship with God. 80% of the kids that walked away from church, have walked away from church, is because of what they saw in their parents. Don't you find that crazy? 80%. Now, 32% of the children from evangelical parents, that if we were to put our name are placed somewhere in a, in a category, that will be the name that we will use because we believe in the gospel, evangelicals. That's where it comes from. But 32% of, evangelical, uh, of kids that come from evangelical parents also walked away from the church because of what they saw in their parents. That's a crazy number. Now, when you put them together, you can see that the average then between only these two groups is about 60%. 60% of these millions of people that have walked away from the church is because of the bad testimony of parents. That's, that's what's happening here. Here we have a group of people that are supposed to be examples of faith. Because that's what a leader is, an example of faith. This is a group of people that the community of faith is supposed to look at them and say... I want to be like them. I want to believe what they believe. This is a group of people that because of their sullenness for God have compromised their character and their faithfulness to God. 
So lesson number one. Actions always, always, always speak louder than words. Words are never, ever, ever, ever enough. Your testimony really matters. So the question for you is, and for me is, do my actions speak louder than my words? The narrative continues, and now we have Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. And look at what happened in verse 58. Peter followed him at a distance right up to the country uh, yard of the high priest. Peter entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Today we're not going to focus on Peter, but God willing, we will do that next week. But the reason why I highlighted the word courtyard is to indicate the location in which this trial is taking place. This is the high uh, priest courtyard. It's his house. It's not even the official place where this trial is supposed to take place. It'll be something like if the Supreme Court Chief Justice goes to the rest of the team and says, listen, we need to make a major decision about the future of the United States. Let's go to my backyard and talk about that. Don't you find that weird? Who does that? Who is going to perform this trial in their house? It tells you that this group of people is so desperate that they're compromising everything. And not only that, look at what happens in verse 59 and verse 60. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they deny did not find any. So here you have the quote-unquote spiritual people of the time not seeking to have a fair trial, but seeking for people that would say what they want to hear. They're not interested in keeping it real. They're looking for people that will say publicly to them what they want to hear. I also think that that is true for a lot of people, including some believers. Maybe not the ones that belong to this church, but other believers. In which we struggle with certain doctrinal things or whatever the Bible says. And instead of digging into the Bible and wrestling with the doctrines of the Bible, we go and look for people that will tell us the very things that we want to hear. This is the thing, church, if you have already made up your mind about something, if your heart has already decided to believe or not believe something, it doesn't matter how many pieces of evidence you have in front of you, you won't believe. You won't believe. So Heidi and I have been watching this show. I'm not going to tell you the name because then you're going to think less of me. Um, we're watching this show in which experts in relationships put couples together. Because according to their calculations and their expertise, they're compatible. So these people uh, get to hang around together for about eight weeks. Now, those of you that are already making faces, I know that you watch the same show, so shame on you. 
And for those of you in the East worship, I could also see your face. So they come together for eight weeks. And at the end of the eight weeks, they decide if they want to stay together or if they want to walk away. So we see this couple, and it's a really interesting couple, that right at the beginning, right at the beginning, the guy is saying some really dumb things. He says something like, he doesn't like the, he doesn't like the lady that these experts chose for him. He doesn't like her face. It gets better. He says, I'm still in love with my ex. It gets better. He says, my ex is pregnant. It gets better. He still wants, for some reason, to stay with this girl. Now, everyone in the show... The counselors, their friends, the other participants, even Heidi and I, we scream into, scream into the TV screen and saying, that guy is an idiot. Run away from your life. Now, that makes sense, right? But if you keep watching the, the episode, right at the end, she says something like, I don't know. I think that there's still something there. What would you make of that? See, she wanted someone to tell her that what, we believe, what she believed was right, even if the entire world knew that this guy was wrong. Very similar to what is happening here. Isn't that the same thing that we see with the religious leaders? Lesson number two. The heart wants what he wants. Even if the evidences are there. The heart wants what he wants, even if you know deep down inside that he's wrong. So I have to ask myself the question, and I have to ask you the question. Do you really believe in everything the Bible says? Thank you. <laughs> so the corrupted behavior continues. Look at now verses 60 and 61. Finally, too... Two false witnesses came forward, verse 50, uh, 61, and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And this is super interesting to me because the high priest is actually doing something that is right, that is legally and lawfully right. He's allowing Two witnesses to come forward because he knows, pay attention here, that the, that, that the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 17 says that in order for someone to serve as a witness, it has to be two or three people at the same time. It cannot be just one person because one person could be wrong. And all of us will look at the high priest and say, good job, you're doing what you're supposed to do. But there's something wrong with the picture. Because these two fellows are, are, are using something that uh, Jesus says in John chapter 2. In which he says that he will destroy the temple and raise it up again. What they do not say, though, is that when Jesus said that, he was talking about himself. He would be the temple. He will be destroyed and he will be raised up again. 
You know what's interesting? The responsibility of the high priest was to make sure that the information that was given to him was accurate. That didn't happen. Lesson number three. Selective commitment is not commitment. To grab the parts of the Bible that you like and ignore other parts of the Bible shows that you're not committed at all. The high priest did not have permission to choose the laws that he wanted to obey and to choose the laws that he did not want to obey. The Bible knows nothing about selective obedience. The Bible knows nothing about partial submission. The Bible calls believers to submit altogether or not submit at all. Because selective commitment is no commitment. Now, if you have a hard time accepting that or believing that, let me just ask you a question. For those of you that are in a meaningful relationship, would you be with a person that says to you, from Monday through Wednesday, I'm going to be faithful for the rest of the week, I'm not. Would you actually have a relationship with that person? Would you actually hire someone that says, I'm going to work really hard from Monday through Thursday, but the rest, I'm only going to give you 50%. Why would a relationship with God be any different? So the question for you and the question for me is, do we have a fragmented faith? Do we have a selective faith? Is Jesus really our Lord over everything or he's not? Or is he not? So the story continues. And the high priest now tries to get uh, answers from Jesus. And Jesus didn't respond. So look at what happened in verse 63. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now the phrase uh, under oath is almost, can almost be translated as saying, I want you to swear before the presence of God. This is not saying, okay, pinky, prom pinky promise, pinky, no, 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 no. Promise before the presence of God. If you are the Messiah and the Son of God. But notice how Jesus responds. He says, you have said so. Now, we're going to get back to that phrase later on because that phrase is really important. But when Jesus responds like this, look at how the high priest responds to that. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do you need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. Now, just in case the, the high priest is not being dramatic. I know it looks dramatic, but it was not dramatic. That was part of the custom, how they show um, when someone was saying something uh, sacrilegiously uh, offensive, if you will. What is unique about this behavior, though? is that that ripping of clothes thing was done by everyone except by the high priest. Unless what was being said was extremely, extremely offensive. So the high priest hears what Jesus says, rips, uh, tear, um, tearing his clothes apart because he thinks that Jesus said that he is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. So basically, publicly, he's saying, there is no greater offense than what these guys say. He called himself the Messiah. He called himself the Son of God. 
Therefore, he deserves to die. Now, I want you to pay attention to the details. Because this is him as a leader publicly in the, uh, declaring this publicly in front of everybody. So in verse 66, look at what he says. He looks around to the rest of the group and he says, what do you think? And look at how they responded. He's worthy of death. Verse 67. Then they spit on his face and he struck with, his, with their fist. Others slapped him. Now, there's a couple of things that we also have to see about here about the inconsistencies of this trial. The reason why the high priest is saying that this is blasphemy, blasphemy is because he is remembering something that, that is stated in Leviticus chapter 24. You know what's interesting about Leviticus chapter 24? That the only person that could be considered a, a blasphemer is someone that actually said, I am Yahweh. Is that what Jesus did? Jesus agreed with the guy. He did not say, I am the God of the Old Testament. The only thing he said is, if you say so. Now, I, I, I make an emphasis in that because I want you to see that the condemnation that Jesus, he just received is completely unjustified. And not only that, this trial should have never taken place where it did in the first place. You know why? Because the law also said, in the Sanhedrin law, that you would never, ever, ever perform a trial before a festivity. And the following day is the Passover. Why, why is that important? Well, because there were certain um, procedures that they were supposed to follow. See, if you were guilty, they would take you to the court. Someone would bring the case against you. Then all the religious leaders would take that information, and overnight they would make a decision, and the following day they would make the verdict. This could never be a trial that happened in a few hours. But that's exactly what we see here. You know what's crazy about this? That every single of the religious leaders know that this is unlawful. Every single one of the religious leaders know that this is not how you perform a trial. Every single, leader, every single one of the religious leaders know what is a, a blasphemy and what is not. You could probably say that Jesus was crazy. But not a blasphemer. So why did they surrender to the influence of the high priest? Why is it that all of them said he's worthy of death? Lesson number four. Because sin is contagious and always wants company. See, Peer pressure is a thing, church. It's not an idea. Peer pressure is a thing. And sin becomes contagious and wants company when your actions are not consistent with your words, when your heart wants what he wants, and when you practice selective commitment. 
Sin is contagious and always wants company. So I got so to ask you the question. Are you aware that you also struggle with peer pressure? Are you aware that depends of the people that is next to you, before you, around you, at all times, they do have an influence in your heart if you're not careful? Because sin is contagious and always wants company. Now, those are the lessons that we learn from the high priest. There's also some lessons that we must learn from Jesus' response. What is interesting here, though, is that there are four lessons that we learn from the high priest, and there are also four lessons that we learn from Jesus' response. So the, witness, the, the false witnesses come out, and they say that Jesus is going to destroy and rebuild the temple. And the priest asked Jesus, what do you have to say about what these men are saying to you? Look at how Jesus responded in verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. And I'm going to give you four answers. Why is it that I think or understand why Jesus remained silent? And the reason why I'm giving you four answers is because as I'm doing my study, I read all these scholars and commentators and preachers, and they all have a different opinion. And what I realized after reading all of those is that probably the reason why they have all different opinions is because probably they're all right. There is more than one reason why Jesus stays silent. Let me give you the first reason why Jesus stays silent. Lesson number one. Because actions... Speak louder than words. See, hours prior to this, he was in Gethsemane, asking the Father to take this cross away from him. And the Father made it clear that he had to go to the cross. He had already wrestled with the Father. He had already brought his concerns, his fear, and his heart to the Father. It's important for us to see as a side note here that Jesus is not a stoic. He's not indifferent to pain. He does not ignore his emotions or pretend that they're not there. In his humanity, he feels everything that we will feel. And he vents to God and not at God. So he wrestles with the Father. And he understood that he was supposed to go to the cross. That there was no way around the cross, and therefore he only has one option. Either he goes to the cross, or he trusts his father's heart and his father's plans. Do you know why I think that Jesus stays silent? Because that was a way for, for him to show us that he truly, truly trusted his father's heart and his father's plans. See, I actually think that if he would have defended himself, there would have been a possibility for him to skip the cross in his humanity, from a human perspective. If he would have defended himself, it could be perceived, at least perceived, that he's trying to change the circumstances. Kathy Keller, um, in a talk uh, given to a young adults. Uh, she says this, she says that most people, in her opinion, most people, and I agree, and I agree with her, most people think that if God changes your circumstances, then we will be okay. 
and that God could be then trusted. But this is what she says. If you are single, that is not your biggest problem. If you are ill, illness is not your biggest problem. And for people who are unhappily married, your spouse is not your bigger problem. And your circumstances in life, whatever they are, are not your biggest problem. We tell ourselves, if God is, uh, if God, if God would just change my circumstances, then everything will be all right. But then she says, but you are wrong. The biggest problem we have is that we lack is the, is the lack of confidence and trust in the God of the universe. Actions do speak louder than words. And Jesus' silence shows us that he truly, truly trusted the Father's heart and the Father's plans. Don't you think that this is the reason why Jesus qualifies to live the life that no one has lived? Why did Jesus remain silent? Lesson number two. Because the heart wants what the heart wants. So, what would change if he would defend himself and the religious leaders change their mind? I will tell you what would happen. He would not go to the cross. The punishment the law of God demanded will not be satisfied. You will not be forgiven. You will continue to be a slave of sin, guilt, and shame. And our relationship with God will be simply impossible. Why did Jesus choose not to defend himself? Because the heart wants what he wants. And you know what he wanted? He wanted you. He wanted me. And he wanted the glory of the Father. The heart wants what he wants. Why did Jesus remain silent? Lesson number three. Because his commitment was not selective. Once again, go back to Gethsemane. Do you remember what he said after he's wrestling with God? Not my will, but your will. Jonathan Edwards explains, in his opinion, says that part of the reason why that prayer is there is for us to know that Jesus had the opportunity to run. And yet he stayed. So here's a couple of questions that I would ask Jesus. And I, own, and I almost know how he would respond. Did Jesus know that he was going to be physically and emotionally, emotionally abused? Of course he did. Did Jesus know that he was going to be humiliated and treated like the worst criminal? Of course he did. Did Jesus know that his body would be broken, his blood would be shed, his face would be deformed, and he will feel completely alone? Of course he did. So why did Jesus did not defend himself? Because his commitment is not selective. It's not partial. Because his commitment is all the way to the end. Because he had to go to the cross. And he would not back down. Why did Jesus remain silent? Lesson number four. Because if sin is contagious and one company, love is also contagious and brings company. And with this, we go with point number three. Look at Jesus' declaration. 
So the second part of verse 63, the high priest asked Jesus if he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And now we're going to go back to that phrase I told you we were going to get back to. In verse 64, he says, you have said so. Notice that he does not stop there, but then he adds, he says, but I say to you all, or to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that little phrase, you have said so, can also be translated to something like this. Yes and no. Or he's almost saying something like, yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, but not the way you think. And to make this point even more clear, he now brings another title to him, which is the Son of Man. See, part of the reason why Jesus does not just agree with the high priest and say, yeah, I am the Messiah, just like you said it, is because he knows that the high priest has a wrong definition of what the Messiah will be. He had misinterpreted the Old Testament. See, if he was only the Messiah, he could be just a warrior. If he would be just the son of God, it could be any of us. But what makes a difference between Jesus and everyone else is that he is the son of, uh, the son of man, which is Jesus' favorite way to describe himself. You know what that means? It means a ton of stuff, but I'm going to give you some. The son of man means that he is the Messiah, that he came to deliver his people, that he is the ultimate son of God. But he also says that he's got the place of most honor because he's sitting at the right hand of the mighty one. And that he came to be a king and a judge. But not just any king and any judge. Because the, the name, the son of man means, son of man means that he will be a king and a judge that is a humble servant. Who came to forgive common sinners. And a suffering servant that will come to die and redeem his people. See, it is only when we see that the one that died was not just the Messiah. And not just a son of God. But that he was the ultimate Messiah, to put it in that way. The true son of God. The one that is a king and a judge but that he becomes a servant, that he becomes a lamb to take what you and I deserve because we look many times more like the high priest. Can't you see why his love is contagious and he brings you in? I think that it's appropriate for us to finish this sermon Reading a fraction of Isaiah 53, but I want to read the version that Eugene Peterson wrote, the message. Because I think that he captures really well what, what happened in Isaiah 53. Because part of the reason why Jesus stayed silent was to fulfill that prophecy. So look at what he says. The servant grew up before God. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, the fact is it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, 
all the things wrong with us. He thought, we thought, he brought it on himself. That God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sin that did that to him. That ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sin. He took the punishment that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We are all like sheep who wander off and gotten lost. We're all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all of our sins, everything we have done wrong, and him and him alone. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he did not say a word. Like a lamb taken to the slaughter, and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in sight. Who has done that for you? But Jesus. The Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, King, Judge, and Lamb of God. Let's pray. God Almighty, it is so, so easy. To surrender to the things that the high priest surrendered to. It is so, so easy, Lord, to, to compromise, to surrender to our hearts. To forget that our actions speak louder than our words. To have a fragmented faith. And it is precisely because we have done that, and we still struggle with that, that Jesus showed us and lived the opposite. I pray, Lord, that you take us to the cross. Because not only we want to be people of the book, but people of the cross. Because it is only when we become people of the cross that all of our tendencies start to die. And we become more and more like Jesus. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the church says.